he has previously said that he understands that the role of king is different, his role as Prince of Wales, and that may imply that he will feel he has to rein back on his public utterances about those things. But it remains to be seen whether he will still be vocal about them in private. So whether he will use those audiences with the government to express views about political questions now that he's king. The king can do no wrong is the simple phrase. Um, and so the monarch is exempt from civil suit and also from criminal prosecution. But that applies only to the monarch. All the other members of the royal family are subject uh, to the laws, civil and criminal, just like the rest of us. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Becky Anderson, and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. Following the death of Queen Elizabeth II on the 8th of September 2022, we immediately had a new monarch ascending the throne and start to carry out the constitutional functions of the head of state. So in this episode, we will be taking a look at what those functions, both de jure and de facto, really are. We will be looking at the role the monarch plays in legislation, both formally and informally, and discovering how much of what we perceive as the role of the monarchy was really down to the personal style of one woman who ruled for longer than most of us can remember. I'm going to be putting these questions to Jonathan Jones Casey, consultant in constitutional law to Linklaters and former permanent secretary and treasury secretary to the government legal service, and Professor Robert Hazel, founder of the Constitutional Unit at UCL. The Cross-Examination. I'm going to kick off our discussion about the monarchy and the constitutional nature of the monarchy by asking you to detail for me what role do they play in legislation? The formal role of the monarch is to give royal assent to primary legislation, that is bills, acts of parliament, and the constitutional principle is that legislation is enacted by both houses of parliament and the sovereign so what's sometimes described as the, the Queen or the King now in Parliament. So Parliament enacts the law and the Sovereign gives assent to it. And that is essentially an automatic formal role. Famously, the last time that royal assent was refused was by Queen Anne in 1708, I think. Essentially, the answer is the Queen automatically assents to legislation. There are two, perhaps two other caveats to that. First of all, I've talked about Acts of Parliament, primary legislation. A lot of laws are made not by primary legislation, but by secondary legislation. And it's worth perhaps touching on two examples of that. First of all, orders in council. So these are orders made by the monarch, now the king, in the Privy Council. Uh, and we saw examples of that in the Privy Council that was held immediately after King Charles succeeded, uh, when various laws were declared and passed at that council. And for the first time ever, we saw that televised. So apart from the formal elements of the council where the new king uh, was declared as the monarch and so on, there was also some 
legislative business. So some laws were made at that council, for example, providing for the continued legal validity of various seals under which government departments act. So although that felt like a very formal occasion and symbolic ceremonial occasion, uh, it was also a legal occasion when laws were made by the monarch in council. And then finally, perhaps for now, an awful lot of laws are made by ministers making regulations under statutory instruments. And the monarch plays no role in those at all. And in fact, very often parliament doesn't play much of a role either. So for any law to be passed by parliament, it has to be passed by both houses, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, going through all the necessary stages, and then it has to receive royal assent. But unlike in some other countries, uh, royal assent in the UK is automatic. But during the uh, really impassioned debates about Brexit in the uh, Parliament when Theresa May was Prime Minister after the Brexit referendum, the suggestion was raised by some of the Brexiteers when two Acts of Parliament were passed against the government's wishes, these were the Cooper-Letwin Bill and the Benn Bill, that perhaps the government should advise the monarch to withhold royal assent. That speculation was wild. Royal assent in the UK is completely automatic. Uh, I went into this in great depth in a book I've just finished writing about the prerogative, uh, which is going to be published in November of this year. Uh, and one of the sources I referred to uh, in saying confidently that royal assent is automatic is the guide to legislative procedure produced by parliamentary council. Parliamentary council are the government's legal draftsmen. They draft all the bills that become acts of parliament. And in their guide to the legislative process, parliamentary council said, royal assent is of course never refused for a bill that has successfully made its way through Parliament. Now, Parliamentary Council, their specialism is careful and precise language. They would not have put that sentence into the Guide to Legislative Procedure unless they were completely confident about it. Uh, and I have checked that with very senior government lawyers um, and they've confirmed that those words were carefully chosen. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to touch on the royal assent bit again, because I, I loved um, your diversion into Brexit uh, and where Parliament forced the government to go and uh, ask for an extension, because I think that did throw up some really fascinating constitutional questions. And what's been playing on my mind, I suppose, is over the last few years, both in England um, and looking across the pond sometimes at what goes on in the American um, context and the American constitution is how far... We seem to be in an age where things which were long established custom, but which were not legislation are being dispensed with or changed. Um, and that is, I think, for me, one of the reasons I'm so keen to understand the role of the monarch and how far they may refuse a royal assent and what would happen constitutionally if they did, because it feels like if it is merely custom that they simply don't do it, is that something which somebody may go against because we seem to be on a bit of a trajectory where that is happening more and more and I'd be curious about your views on that. The truth is that most of these 
rules in inverted commas are really only customs and in principle they could be changed in our system parliament itself is sovereign so parliament uh, can enact legislation which changes the law including constitutional law and occasionally it does that but the, the, the point we're talking about here is that for legislation to be valid the queen has to assent to it the practice you know, certainly during the late queen's reign has been to try and keep the monarch out of controversial political questions, to keep her out of politics and leave politics to the politicians, to the government and parliament. And that's why it would be such an extraordinary thing to put the monarch in the position of having to choose whether to consent to legislation or not. But I think it is very unlikely to happen um, because I suspect this view that you try and keep the monarch out of the really complicated, controversial political decisions will continue to prevail into the reign of the new king. So do you think that there's a, a value, I suppose is the right word, in having something like the royal assent? I'm thinking particularly in the Brexit situation and the proposition that the Queen could refuse assent um, if the government instructed her to, that being able to say to instruct or ask the Queen to refuse consent in that manner, whilst legally possible, would be throwing us into such a constitutional crisis, or it would be personally embarrassing to the Queen and the royal family in that situation, that it shouldn't be done? Yes, it certainly uh, shouldn't be done. And listeners who are interested can read the blogs uh, written at the time, in around 2017, when the cooper Letwin bill and the Benn bill uh, had been passed by Parliament and the legal blogosphere went wild um, with people, uh, some people arguing that royal assent could be refused uh, on the advice of the government. But the majority view amongst those commenting at the time was that it could not. And indeed, when the cooper Letwin bill was passed, and again it was quite dramatic, uh, passed its final stages in the House of Commons because it had to be passed in a single day when, as it were, the opponents had seized control of the order paper. And it passed its final stages just after 10.30 in the evening and people waited then to see whether it would get royal assent and royal assent was granted just after 11pm in the evening. And that's another very small bit of evidence that it's automatic. I don't believe that the Queen was kept up late in Buckingham Palace waiting for the news that the bill had passed through its final stages and would she please sign here. Royal assent was granted very, very swiftly and I hope the Queen was uh, asleep in her bed or reading her bedtime story without being disturbed. I have never known another monarch. And I would imagine many people are in the situation where they have never known another monarch. And what I started to think was how much of what I perceive to be the traditional customary or legislative role of the monarchy is actually just the personal preference of Queen Elizabeth, which was very consistent and unwavering. And how much of what I see happening in the monarchy and what I think is law or I think is inalienable custom, was actually just her preference and might change now we have a new king with a, potentially a new way of doing things. There's no doubt that the Queen was a model constitutional monarch. Um, she was scrupulously neutral on all political questions. 
uh, and we never knew her own opinions. She never gave a single interview during her very long life. So she showed extraordinary uh, self-discipline and self-control uh, because by all accounts from all the politicians and others who knew her, she was a highly intelligent and, and thoughtful person. I say she never expressed her own opinions, but I think we can guess that she did have quite strong opinions on two things. One, and this came out in a lot of the obituaries, she was passionately committed to the Commonwealth and she took her duties as head of the Commonwealth very, very seriously. And just occasionally, that did lead to tensions with her government, um, most notably during the premiership of Margaret Thatcher, when uh, Mrs. Thatcher was much more sympathetic to South Africa than the rest of the Commonwealth countries. This was South Africa in the days of apartheid. And Mrs. Thatcher was willing to go against the arms embargo on exporting arms to South Africa. And uh, the Queen, as head of the Commonwealth, uh, I mean, she never said anything publicly, but I think it was pretty clear from memoirs at the time that there were tensions over that issue, with the Queen, as it were, siding with the Commonwealth, and Mrs. Thatcher taking a different line as head of the UK government wanting to sell arms. And there's another issue which surfaced uh, more recently, where again, uh, the Queen uh, wasn't exactly neutral, I think, for perfectly un understandable reasons. And this is to do with Scottish independence. Uh, and it goes back uh, some way, because in 1977, at the time of the Queen's Silver Jubilee, when devolution to Scotland and Wales was first on the agenda under the Labour government headed by Jim Callaghan. And her Silver Jubilee address to Parliament, uh, the Queen said was to the effect of, I cannot forget that I was crowned Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and at the time, people read some significance uh, into those words. Uh, and perhaps they were correct to do so. And listeners will remember more recently during the Scottish independence referendum uh, in 2014, when uh, the Queen came out from uh, attending church in Crathay Church outside Balmoral. She said to one of the onlookers and well-wishers, I hope you'll think very carefully about the future, or words to that effect. Um, and again, uh, decoded, um, it was thought that she was expressing some concern about the possible fragmentation of the Union. And I think this is a very difficult issue for the monarchy. It's a, going to be a difficult issue for King Charles, um, because there's likely to be a second independence referendum. Um, the UK government cannot stall and put it off forever. And Charles has been proclaimed King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and with that title, we can't expect him, I think, to be totally neutral if his kingdom is no longer the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but it becomes a rather lesser uh, kingdom. So I think that, that that's an interesting issue to watch. I'm sure he will try to be as scrupulously neutral as he can. If Scotland does become independent, the Scottish National Party have long said 
Scotland would continue to be a monarchy. And so they would invite our monarch to become the king or queen of Scotland. Uh, they would in effect become one of the realms, countries like Australia, New Zealand, Jamaica, where our monarch is also head of state. But I think that issue is one where it's very difficult for the monarchy um, to be and to be seen to be completely neutral. Part of the reason that I asked that question is that my understanding is that King Charles has been um, in previously when he was Prince of Wales um, and he, when he was younger, he was famously more outspoken on political issues, especially regarding the environment. Uh, and it is incredibly interesting to me to see how he may change going into the role as monarch or whether he changes the role of monarch as a result of uh, the fact that he was more outspoken. I mean, our system, the monarch, does not have executive power. It certainly does not have unlimited power. I mean, the sovereign sovereign is not really sovereign. In our constitution, parliament is sovereign. So in a constitutional monarchy, the, the monarch only has such powers as are conferred on it or him or her by the constitution. And as I've said, those um, in our in our system, the constitution consists of this bundle of things that are both laws, but also customs and practices and principles and conventions. Um, uh, but beyond those, uh, the powers, the actual power of the monarch is very limited. And that's why we're focusing on these relatively softer forms of influence, mostly behind the scenes, mostly private. And then the question is, whether King Charles will seek to influence those softer forms of influence in a different way from his mother. I think we saw during his, the first week of his reign, Charles's deep understanding of the importance of the other nations in the Union through the visits that he made to Scotland, to Northern Ireland, to Wales, just uh, in his very first days as the new monarch. Um, and paying, in effect, his respects to their parliaments and also attending services in their cathedrals. Coming to Charles's uh, public statements um, as Prince of Wales about the many causes in which he takes a passionate interest, and they're well known, the environment, architecture and the built environment, farming, etc. In fact, he said, uh, in his first address to the nation, given just the evening after the Queen died, that he would have less time, now that he's King, to pursue these causes. And I think he was signalling then his understanding that, as monarch, he has to remain neutral on all public matters. And if he finds that difficult and does become outspoken, what I would expect to happen is that the Prime Minister would say, tactfully but firmly, this is no longer acceptable now that you're the monarch. And there are precedents for that in the past of a Prime Minister, uh, in effect, giving a monarch a solemn warning. It happened just over a hundred years ago, uh, as it happens again with a very new monarch. This is King George V in 1912, when the burning issue of the day, and it was almost bigger than Brexit, was the Irish question. 
which had grumbled and troubled British politics for 30 years, ever since the 1880s, and been left unresolved. The wish to grant Ireland home rule, which was pursued by successive liberal governments, starting with Gladstone, and bitterly opposed by the Tories, who were the Unionists. And in 1912, the Prime Minister was Asquith, and he was trying yet again to get an Ireland home rule bill through Parliament. And the Tories were fiercely opposed and were advising the King again to withhold royal assent. Um, it was an issue then. And the King felt terribly torn. I mean, he was new on the throne, a very conscientious monarch. He agonised about this. And agonising about it, he said to Asquith, wouldn't it be a good idea if I convene a conference of all the parties, a private conference in the palace, just to see whether we can't reach some kind of cross-party agreement on this. Um, and Asquith knew that that wasn't going to work. And in the summer of 1912, he wrote to the King a formal memorandum, which from memory was headed something like the constitutional duties of the sovereign. And it told the King in terms, you act always on the advice of your ministers. In effect, he was telling him, you're not an independent agent. When we advise you to do something or not to do something, you have to follow our advice. And that is the role of the constitutional monarch. Politically, they are neutered. I'm very interested in the weekly meeting that happens between the prime minister and the monarch. Can you tell me some more about that? There's a weekly audience, which over recent times has been held uh, over video or on the phone, but um, in, historically was normally held in person. And successive prime ministers have said that they regarded it as one of the most important engagements of their week and that they derived huge benefit from their conversations with the Queen, given her wisdom and her experience and so on. But with very few exceptions, we don't know what was actually said. And those conversations happened between the monarch and the prime minister personally, with nobody else present and no note kept. We will never know what takes place. And so we will never know the extent of any monarch's influence. We do know that successive prime ministers have said that they find it a very useful occasion where they can talk completely frankly to the one person who they know will never ever leak. Uh, because I think being prime minister is a very lonely role. They're surrounded by political rivals. Uh, cabinets, particularly recent cabinets, um, have been famously leaky. And I think being monarch is also quite a lonely role, and that's not sufficiently appreciated. So I can well understand that the weekly audience uh, can be quite an important event for both of them. And we don't know what the personal chemistry might be between Liz Truss and King Charles and whether they find it as useful as some of the some previous prime ministers have done. Um, but the only the only other thing I, I would say is that the influence of the monarch uh, has changed down the ages uh, and it has gradually become less and less. So the constitutional role of the monarch does evolve in each reign. I mean, in the 19th century, uh, King William IV was dismissed a prime minister because he didn't like him. Um, that would be unthinkable now. I mean, it rebounded 
on the king because he he learned the hard lesson that as prime minister he had to have someone who could command the confidence of parliament um, and in effect his decision uh, was reversed by the subsequent election even in the 20th century uh, monarchs could follow the example of queen victoria in expressing views to the prime minister about the suitability of certain ministers and there's no doubt that queen victoria uh, vetoed the appointment of certain ministers um, but the most recent example we know of that happening and it wasn't a veto was um, with king george the sixth during the war he offered advice to churchill as it happened advice which churchill did not heed uh, about appointing Beaverbrook, I think from memory as Minister of Aircraft Production. Um, but uh, immediately after the war in 1945, when Clement Attlee formed the first post-war Labour government, um, George VI uh, advised him not to appoint Hugh Dalton as Foreign Secretary, but instead to appoint Ernie Bevin. Uh, and that advice Attlee did take. I mean, as it happens, Ernest Bevin was a very successful foreign secretary. So, um, so that was quite a fortunate outcome. Um, but it's unthinkable, I think, now that the monarch would express any views to the prime minister about the suitability of ministers. And having no political power uh, is really the secret of the monarchy's survival. So I assume there is no FOIable um, content. <laughs> well, there's no FOIable content. And in any event, the Queen and the Royal Household are exempt from FOI, as are any records of communications with or about the sovereign. So none of this is FOIable. There's a special private character to those uh, engagements. I mean, as you said, Prince Charles as Prince of Wales was much more outspoken and interventionist about social and political issues, including, as you say, the environment and agriculture and climate change, but also architecture and the arts and so on. He has previously said that he understands that the role of King is different, his role as Prince of Wales, and that may imply that he will feel he has to rein back on his public utterances about those things. But it remains to be seen, and maybe we will not see, <laughs> whether he will still be vocal about them in private. So whether he will use those audiences or his other private channels with the government to express views about political questions, uh, about the UK's international relations, for example, he's got views about all of those things. And we just, maybe we will see, or maybe we won't, how far he seeks to express his views about those now that he's king. In addition to the weekly meetings, is it the case that if a piece of legislation which is coming up touches on Crown interests, is there a duty to consult there? There is. So we talked about the formal role of the monarch in giving royal assent at the end of the parliamentary process. But there is also a separate process called confusingly King's or Queen's consent, now King's consent, of course, where the, the monarch is consulted about legislation that touches on their personal interests. So that could be their personal property interests, for example. And there is a very well-established, but still rather obscure process by which 
the sovereign and actually the Prince of Wales is consulted in advance about those aspects of a bill which might touch on those personal interests. This process is, is documented and it's well known and there is guidance about it, but the details of what happens are generally kept pretty private. So, and it's been, been criticised in some quarters that this happens at all because it's regarded as a private and inappropriate way for one individual to influence legislation as it affects them and get special treatment. But there it is, the process is, is, is well established. And as I say, it applies to the private interests of the sovereign and also the Prince of Wales. So you have this process called now King's consent and Prince's consent. Uh, and that is part of the process by which legislation is, is drawn up. I have a much better understanding now, thank you of what the monarch's role is constitutionally, but uh, how does or does this not extend to other members of the royal family? So most of it doesn't extend beyond the monarch. The monarch is undoubtedly in a unique position in the constitution. In part, we've talked about some of the formal roles consenting to uh, legislation, but there are various other uh, powers that the sovereign exercises personally, for example, the award of honours and so on. Uh, and the sovereign personally enjoys various legal privileges, for example, immunity from legal suit. So the king can't be prosecuted or sued in the criminal or civil courts. So for example, if, I mean, if the king were to go on a shoplifting spree, uh, unthinkable, thought, of course, he could not be prosecuted. But equally, if he were to knock you over while driving a car, you couldn't sue him for damages in the civil courts. I'm not saying that the king wouldn't do the right thing and see you right, but you couldn't actually personally sue him in the civil courts. What's I mean, what, The way it's sometimes put is that they are the king's courts, so the king can't be sued in his own courts. And that applies both to the criminal and the civil courts. That applies to the monarch personally. The royal household in various ways will be contracting and employing people and so on, and will be subject to the law in the ordinary way. We're talking about the monarch in their personal capacity. But again, that applies only, only to the monarch personally. It doesn't apply to other members of the royal family, including the Prince of Wales. And there are examples of not very many, for perhaps obvious reasons, but there are examples of Princess Anne pleaded guilty to an offence of keeping a dangerous dog one of her dogs bit somebody and she paid a fine. Uh, and I think she's been done for speeding. I think a, num a number of members of the royal family have been done for speeding. So um, there are examples of other members of the royal family being subject to the ordinary law. Uh, so the immunity that I've described applies only to the sovereign. And actually it's not that, it, it's quite common for heads of state to enjoy that kind of sovereign immunity while they hold office. So you might describe that as an example of that. But most of those privileges don't apply to other members of the royal family. Um, there are various ways in which the Prince of Wales uh, has a particular treatment. So the Prince of Wales, as you know, is also Duke of Cornwall uh, and is entitled to the income and the benefit of the Duchy of Cornwall. So that's unique to him. Um, and that affects the tax treatment, for example, uh, and the income of the Prince of Wales. But most of the 
the special role and the special privileges that we've been talking about applies only to the monarch personally and not to other members of the royal family. Leading on from that, what exemptions does the monarch enjoy in their position as monarch? Um, and what protections do they fail to get, do you think, that ordinary people do get, if any? The king can do no wrong, is the simple phrase. Um, and so the monarch is exempt from civil suit and also from criminal prosecution. But that applies only to the monarch. All the other members of the royal family are subject uh, to the laws, civil and criminal, just like the rest of us. You know, to give you a potential example, Prince Andrew could be prosecuted if there was sufficient evidence of sexual assault or another crime. Listeners may remember Prince Philip had a driving accident only a year or so, I think, before he died um, at Sandringham. And uh, I imagine he could have been prosecuted for careless driving. So the, the exemption applies only to the monarch herself, or we have King Charles himself. The only wider point I would make, and it, it goes to inheritance tax, is that a lot of the, the property, uh, in effect, is inalienable. Think about the pictures in the royal collection. Fantastic pictures that must be worth tens of millions, possibly even hundreds of millions of pounds. But they can't pop them. You know, even in law, they are the personal property of the monarch. There would be a major public row, and quite rightly, if uh, they ever wanted to sell one. So that that's an argument, I think, for them uh, continuing to have some exemption from inheritance tax, because these are, these are the property of the nation, even if strictly they are the property of the crown. Before we go, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? The monarch, in effect, has become a cipher, and having no political power is the secret of the survival of the monarchy, because ultimately, uh, if the monarchy is to continue, it depends on public support. Uh, and like all the other monarchies in Western Europe, monarchy now is ceremonial. It retains this residual role of being the ultimate guardian of the constitution. And you can see that perhaps uh, more visibly in some of the other European monarchies, and very dramatically, uh, for example, in Spain, when uh, King Juan Carlos was a fairly recently restored monarch post-Franco, and there was an attempted coup d'etat in Spain in 1981, and Juan Carlos courageously put on his military uniform and went on television and assumed the role of commander-in-chief of the armed forces, which formerly he was, and ordered the troops uh, back into their barracks. So that's a rather dramatic example. I hope nothing of the kind ever happens here or comes near to it. But the monarch is the ultimate guardian of the constitution. And the monarch still does have prerogative powers which are discretionary. So we saw that, for example, in the prorogation case. Now, when Boris Johnson asked the Queen to prorogue Parliament in the summer of, from memory, I think it was 2019, uh, the Queen prorogued Parliament, but there was an immediate legal challenge and the Supreme Court 
ruled that not only was the advice unlawful, but the prorogation itself was unlawful. I imagine the Queen was not at all amused at being told by the courts uh, that something that she had done was unlawful, something that had never happened previously in her reign. But the importance of that for the future is that if in future, and again, I hope it doesn't happen, but if it does, if in future a prime minister were to make a doubtful request for prorogation uh, in similar circumstances, perhaps to 2019, wanting to shut down parliament in order to avoid any uncomfortable criticism, I think a monarch in future could refer to the Supreme Court judgment and the principles which it laid down very clearly by the then President Brenda Hale uh, and the Supreme Court said that it's a fundamental principle of our constitution that the executive is accountable to parliament. And if the effect of a prorogation is that the executive is not accountable, then that prorogation uh, can potentially be unlawful. So I think the monarch has an important role as the ultimate guardian of the constitution in not agreeing to dodgy requests for prorogation. And there's a slightly similar set of principles which apply to a request for dissolution. Um, and those are set out in what are known as the Lassell's principles. Tommy Lassell's was the King's private secretary in 1950, and wrote a letter to the Times under a pseudonym, Senex, wise old man, in which he set out three criteria which would guide a monarch in deciding whether to grant or refuse a request for dissolution. So although it, almost everything day to day, the monarch has no political power in our monarchy, as in the other monarchies in Europe, the monarch does remain the ultimate guardian of the constitution and just occasionally has a very, very important role to play. I came away from these fascinating discussions with both more and less questions than I expected to. Firstly, I was surprised that the formal powers, the de jure powers of the monarch, were so much smaller than I expected. And yet, on the other hand, I was surprised at the width and breadth of the soft power that the monarch, and to a lesser extent, the Prince of Wales enjoys. A weekly private meeting with the Prime Minister and consultation rights over that early stage of legislation, neither of which are recorded, published or fully reviewable by Parliament, is a much greater soft power than I realised was in play. And of course, we won't know fully the tenor of this new King's regime for some time to come. I think the next few years will be very interesting for all Constitution Watchers. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Becky Anderson, and I have thoroughly enjoyed making this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do like and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any in the future. The Hearing. The Cross-Examination. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.